beautiful. Thank you, man. I've been trying to control my mind for years. Well, still the mind control is the answer. It's helped Barry Farber. I don't know. Well, almost anything could under the circumstances, I guess. Uh, Barry, of course... Uh, you know, I, I took some pictures of him. Rather, Zee Hing took some pictures of him one time and did a drawing of him once. Really? She did? Yeah. I didn't know that. You know, she took pictures, didn't you? He had a lot of trouble last night. Barry did? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What kind? Uh, I think it was Martin Gross and someone else that they got into a hassle. And the one person demanded that the other person apologize. And he failed to do so. And all of a sudden, I understand, you hear microphones <laughs> dropping on the floor, yelling and screaming. And woman said, don't hit my husband or something like that. That's according to the report on the part of Bob Williams. And uh, uh, Barry Farber said afterwards that this was the first time that he had become a sportscaster. He was describing a blowjob. Everything. What's happened to you? Yes, no, we had the same situation about, uh, yeah. we were on until 5.30 in the morning, about 5.15, where there were two fellows that started, and a third guy came in holding one of the cardioid mics that we used to have, you know, the big yeah. bird cages. This was at OR? At OR, yeah. yeah. And he was going to slam it on another guy's head, mm. and uh, I was announcing uh, what was happening. And I forget who it was. I think it was uh, the Commissioner Marine and Aviation, Charles Leaving. Charlie got in and uh, stopped the hassle. He's big enough. He can do it. That's right. And they gave the one guy back the moon potato. That was what they were (laughs) fighting (laughs) over. A potato that had come down from the moon and it had fallen on the floor and the other fellow was a research scientist and he wanted to investigate to find out whether this really came from the moon or not. I remember Howard Menger. Yeah, right. I remember him. Seen the beautiful signs, as I recall. That's he did. Uh, Highbridge, New Jersey. Chef, can you understand how it is that the astronauts get up there, you know, where they can look down and see us and they're bouncing all around that little car that's got a cruising radius of about a mile and a half. And uh, they look at this terrain, they look at that, and not one of them has ever come back with a moon potato. I think we spent our money in vain. Well, I don't think they were in the agricultural area. Well, the the potato-growing areas were towards the south. No. Uh, They didn't uh, investigate that. That has has been mentioned in uh, a lot of the books. Certainly it's been mentioned in the Russian books. Yes, There are potatoes and other vegetables that are growing on the moon, but I think the next time they go up there, they'll possibly do something. How did you get one on the show, though? I'm curious about that. Uh, Howard Menger had taken a trip uh, many years before NASA, and he went up there, and uh, he was interested in uh, what was happening, and he visited some uh, uh, friends of his Mm -hmm. who used to live in the States here and then went to the moon, migrated there. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had uh, become involved in uh, farming, and uh, he brought back uh, one potato. Well, uh, did this fight on your show uh, involve that potato? Yes, uh, the, the the potato that he had with him. There was a man who was a uh, researcher, and he in turn 
wanted to look at the potato, and Menger permitted me and Charlie Leadham and uh, the attorney from uh, Long Island to look at it. Did Charlie look at it? Oh, yeah. Charlie was pretty sold on it because Charlie himself uh, never spent any great amount of time up there. Uh, but one time when the first, uh, which a lot of people laugh about, but the first, for lack of a better way of labeling it, the first flying saucer landed in Central Park, mm -hmm. Cheap Meadow. And there were about three or four people, uh, slightly taller than the average uh, person here on this planet. And uh, Charles was out there. He had his uh, dog with him, and they had a Venusian dog. One of the men had been born on the planet Venus. And the dog ran out and ran around, and the dog was huge. It was about up to the height of this table. Mm. And that was a fellow by the name of Buck Nelson who lived out in Missouri who was on this trip. And May uh, I, Excuse me, John. Did the dog do what earth dogs generally do when they get on the grass at Central Park? No, no. That's a, that's that a thing that I never I mean, realized. A big-sized dog like that would be exciting. Well, no, they have, uh, they have, uh, I guess you'd call them uh, like pills. They're sort of a saran wrap. Yeah, no, they're pre-packaged. That's right, and you and and the dog is given after each meal. No waste. One right. of these yeah. saran wrap uh, yeah. tablets, uh -huh. and in turn everything is wrapped that. in that way there, so there's no problem. So Charles, they invited him. I think Charles had a boxer at the time, and they invited him, and Charles had to get back to work, and he had about two hours. Actually, it took, I think, about uh, 40 minutes to go to the moon, and uh, the return trip was only about 25 minutes. Or they had a tailwind. John, that if my yeah. memory serves me right, didn't that dog weigh 600 pounds? The Venusian, Venusian dog, dog weighed, Charles. No, yeah. the Venusian and in fact, when I was out pounds. at Giant Rock Airport, uh, where George Van Tassel uh, meets the uh, people from other planets, this man was, he had used a curry comb on this Venusian dog, and uh, he found that there was an abundant amount of hair in the teeth of the comb, and he was selling this hair in little plastic bags, uh, envelopes, I should say. Actually, he resented when I interviewed him that I used the word selling. He had accepted love offerings mm -hmm. of 50 cents. Well, John, didn't you used to accept love offerings for a... Uh for a, uh, a razor blade sharpener that you created one time? That was a two-ball marble sharpener that would restore the original uh, cutting edge to a blade. And uh, actually, uh, well, I can't uh, say uh, that you get a hundred shades, but you get a good 50 to 60 shades. You see, what it did, the two marble balls were in a wire frame didn't you and make you it out of coat hangers, those wire frames? Originally, it was designed uh, using coat hanger wire. And then eventually, we had a firm that made, uh, and it did them certainly more rapidly than we could do them. And we had to use fine marbles, too, not mm. the ones that some of the kids might use, but like a shooter, you know, an egg. Yeah. John, how long has it been since you worked the Buddha Gap? I haven't uh, worked Buddha for maybe... Uh, 20 
five years. You ran out of flukum, that's why. Uh, well, I, I think uh, the uh, it's still available. I know that I had a tragedy that occurred at the Goldblatt store in Gary, Indiana, or Hammond, Hammond Indiana. Hammond, Indiana. I had uh, had a young man who was employed by me uh, working the Buddha joint, and uh, it seemed that uh, I think there was a food shop in the basement. That's right. I worked down there yeah. one time. There were we two escalators, exactly. one up, one down. Well, I had this counter. In the you remember the manager there. of the food place down there? Do you call Well, I, I don't think he ever forgot me. That's right. It was a woman. And and uh, funny, uh, you were downstairs in the food department of Goldblatt. From about 9 o'clock till 12 noon. And for some reason, that was only a four-floor store or right. five floors. I, I forget. Big store, though. Block That's right. square. Yeah. And uh, on the top floor, in women's coats... Uh, a lot of people seem to be leaving. <laughs> and then gradually the third floor cleared out and the second floor. By that time the manager had called me and I came over from the hotel and he asked if there was something going on. Uh, well, he didn't call it a Buddha joint, but uh, uh, with the papers. You see, a message was written on plain white paper, a message to you, for you, and about you, without the aid of any electronic instruments or anything like that. All you would do is to put your initials to identify the blank piece of paper. And uh, in order to bring the spirits there to give you a character analysis, it required certain chemicals, including some sulfur compound that I learned later was used for manufacturing stink bombs that were used from time to time in theaters in Indiana. Uh, not because of the productions, but just because of... Kids. Just general high school. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we closed that about a quarter of 12. And uh, <laughs> there were literally thousands of people in front of the Goldblatt star on that beautiful afternoon in June. Magnificent day, sunny, bright and everything. We never worked uh, Buddha again in a Goldblatt store. They were rather narrow-minded, the entire chain. <laughs> just chased everybody out. Yeah, yeah. Dialogue Radio 57, WMCA, right here in New York City. Say, we're back here again. My name, Long John Neville. My guest tonight, Alan Cornett, pharmaceutical consultant for International Chemical Laboratories, and Gene Shepard, who is heard on uh, WOR. And also, Gene is doing uh, all of the Alka-Seltzer commercials, Magnavox commercials, and Greyhound, right? Uh, actually, Sylvania, not Magnavox. Sylvania, I'm awfully <laughs> sorry. And Thank his you. new book is titled The Ferrari in the Bedroom, and it's published by Dodd Mead and Company, and any book that Gene is responsible for always is a great book. And we hope that you have an opportunity to get a copy. I know that uh, Candy Jones, my wife, read, uh, I guess, about uh, three of the stories, and she called me just before, after we were on about 20 minutes or so, and she's a big fan. Well, she's she a beautiful she, woman. She thinks she's... Well, I'm a beautiful man. <laughs> that's true, John. Yeah. <laughs> you don't ordinarily say that that's, to an old friend, though. That's right. I, without I really, getting hit in the mouth. That's right. Yeah. Alan? 
Yeah. Uh, I'm interested uh, the title, The Ferrari in the Bedroom. Uh, I presume, I know a great many books. Uh, Is that the last story in the book? Yeah, it's yeah. Th that title's taken from the last story in the book, yeah. Uh, why did you select it? Uh, perhaps I'm, I'm totally uh, wrong and on the wrong track, but when I see the Ferrari in the bedroom and I did not read the last piece, I uh, uh, get a sexual connotation in that a Ferrari, uh, i.e. a racing car, and there would be a subliminal uh, uh, sexual uh, machismo uh, whatever you want to call it. Um, with regard to that entire uh, thing, the racing car, the bedroom, am I wrong or what? No, you're not. You're, in fact, uh, that you're the first guy, Alan, who's, who's actually come up with that. Most people take titles literally. In fact, uh, this drives writers right up the wall. That uh, I've had people come up and say, well, is this a book about cars? Uh, and then I heard somebody say, uh, an interview says, uh, oh, uh, the Ferrari in the bedroom. Uh, the Ferrari. Isn't that one of those uh, brake front uh, Italian uh, uh, bureaus? It's a, is this a book about interior decorating? No, actually, people are very literal about titles. And I'm glad you, <laughs> you, know, you, you, you took it that way because that's the way that title is meant to be. Because one of the, one of the points I try to make in one of the stories in the, in the book, Alan, is that we are now in the middle of probably the greatest obsession with sex ever in the history of the world, quite possibly since the days of the Romans, who also had one. And it's an obsession. It's, it's gone beyond the bounds of what you could call a healthy interest in, dot, dot, dot. Uh, and it's become an obsession that uh, sex, in fact, is even carried to the point now today. It hasn't yet even hit New York. You know, we're a little behind in a lot of things. That in other parts of the country, Alan, they now have uh, what they call sex radio, where a, a, a guy sits on the, on the phone and people call in their sexual experiences. Yeah, it's only sex. I believe in Playboy magazine, either in the January issue or in the December issue, in uh, the, the beginning uh, part where they uh, Playboy uh, after hours or about town, uh, not the editorial uh, per se, but uh, comments of things yeah. which are occurring. They discuss this. Uh, I, I, I would imagine it's well, traveling on the West Coast. See, oh no, it's 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 happening. Oh, it's all over the country. It just hasn't hit here yet because New York radio tends to be uh, often uh, slower to react to uh, trends in the country than it is uh, much more quickly in other parts of the country. But I have felt that we've now approached the point of a sexual obsession. You know that, that uh, years, many years ago, the Chinese had uh, a foot fetish. It's fascinating, uh, which is pretty well documented. And uh, there was a time when there was an obsession with music that swept Europe in the late, uh, late 1700s and early 1800s. Uh, until it got to be a fanaticism, almost a, a mania during the days of the Viennese waltz. That's all that happened. People just were absolutely uh, obsessed with music. And we're in the middle of a sexual obsession now, I think. It's fascinating. Well, one comment, though. And that's why, excuse me, I just want to finish the thing about my, my title there. And that's why I selected that title, because to me, sex 
has only one more way to go now, and it will become a competitive sport. Uh, up to this point, it's certainly been a, a spectator thing. Most movies now are really spectator sport. This new movie by Brando, nobody talks about uh, the, anything except the fact that it's explicit sex, and everybody's sitting watching it. That's all. It's a spectator event. And it's very close to Aldous Huxley's feelies, if you're familiar with The Brave New World, which he wrote in 1932, where he said that eventually entertainment will be people simply going to a theater and watching sex. Well, you and even experiencing it, they'll grab a, two, a pair of electrodes and they'll feel... And so I think that the day will come when sex will be uh, an Olympic event. And Howard Cosell will be on hand to describe it to us. In, uh, there was a film recently, I believe it was produced by Buck Henry. Well, he's uh, the... Is There Sex After Death? And in there, uh, he uh, plays upon an idea. I believe the fellow was Arkin who thought of it. He promoted something as the first international sex bowl. Well, see, now that's interesting. You know that that, that Arkin, uh, nothing. I had, as a matter of fact, as long ago as five years ago on my show, I did a whole piece on, on the, and in fact even enacted it, that, that there would be a great crowd of people would come to, uh, to uh, uh, like uh, Soldier's Field in Chicago, to watch magnificent sexual athletes perform. And they would have their various specialties. See, I, I'll go further than Henry. Henry is, is not a particularly clever guy. I know Henry. He's, uh, he's got what we call in New York chutzpah. <laughs> and, 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 and to me, they will have their specialties. Uh, there will be the dash men. Uh, there, will be, there will be the endurance performer, magnificent performer, who, who uh, the 26-mile endurance run. There will be the mixed doubles, which will be an exciting event. And then, of course, there will be classical school figures that the people will perform. And there will, naturally, there will be uh, there'll be uh, more than that. There'll be even team events, medley relays, and uh, <laughs> and I can see Howard Cosell sitting on on hand uh, talking about the fact that the Russians once again loaded the uh, judging the, the judges now, and the unfair points were taken off the American performer. We return you to Chris Schenkel. Well, I don't know about the success of that, but I would imagine as a participant, training must be a ball. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> uh, That's one way to put it. <laughs> some time ago, you had a series of programs on public service television, which... Uh, Not some time ago. They just went off. Uh, about a year uh, and a half ago. No, no. Uh, the, the last episode was shown... Let's see. This is now January... Uh, was shown in October. Uh, called Gene Shepard's America. Correct. Uh, and uh, as a rule, I have very strong feelings regarding public service television. I, uh, uh, I think it's uh, basically a disgrace. With the exception <laughs> of uh, your, your series was one of the few uh, uh, individual ones which I could actually uh, watch. You've done a great deal of traveling, and you've made certain comments on the American scene. What, what is your feeling? Where is America going? That, uh, you know, it's, uh, that question comes up. People 
I hear a lot of panel shows based on that idea. And I, I personally believe that uh, that America has not changed as much as our media leads us to believe it to have changed. In other words, uh, being a professional in the media, in various media, we we tend to to we're looking for stories. We tend to uh, to create a lot of things which possibly may exist on a very small scale into a large affairs and that America has continued to go along it's a, it's an interesting thing to get out in, in many many towns in America and find that a lot of the things which we think in New York are, are burning issues just simply don't exist out there and I mean over great areas so if you ask me where it's going uh, how do you mean? Politically? Do you mean socially? Do you mean uh, sexually speaking? Well, I, I was concerned with the, the entire aspect of it. Uh, from what you have just said, I would take it, uh, and it's my personal opinion, New York is an anomaly. It is, and it has been. You know, this is not only uh, a true in, in America, but it's true in many other countries that that if you go to France, you'll find that large areas of France uh, and I've been in those areas in many cases. Uh, very large areas of France are simply have about as much relationship to Paris as they have to the moon. Uh, that Paris is a world city. It has very little to do with France in general. America has its first world city, and, and, and that developed about the time of the end of World War II. New York became an international city. I think there are certain cities around the world that don't have much relationship to the country they're in. These are really, they have more relationship with each other, in other words, than they have with the countries they're in. For example, Tokyo, fascinating. I was in Tokyo this fall, and I also was in Osaka, I was in Kyoto. And to me, Tokyo has much more in common with Chicago than it has with, say, uh, Kyoto. I, uh, Do you agree with that? No, as a matter of fact, uh, I was in Tokyo, I guess it was three years ago, and uh, that was the first city, of course, that I, I, I went to in uh -huh. Japan, and I had this picture, perhaps it was the Hollywood stereotype, yeah. the uh, Japanese gardens, oh, yeah. and the women in the, the kotomotos, uh, <laughs> and um, the, the bowing, and we arrived, uh, and it's a hell of a flight. Uh, sure is. And we arrived, and it was uh, midday, and the smog was, you know, yo thick. Traffic, and fantastic. traffic, and people, and that evening... And it didn't even look particularly oriental. That was my point, <laughs> that Western dress, uh, the Ginza, is um, very much like Times Square. Oh. It used to be. Yeah. Um, and I was quite disappointed with Tokyo, and I was quite disappointed with Osaka. Then, of course, I went to Kyoto. Different story. Which uh, <clears throat> fits the stereotype. Uh, you have the, uh, the uh, Buddhist uh, temples and the Shinto shrines, and you have the Japanese gardens, and it's uh, the shops, and it's an entirely different outlook upon Japan. Well, Sir Alan, I've, I've done a lot of world traveling, and, and uh, in fact, uh, just last summer I traveled around the world for Playboy, uh, a piece that I'm doing about it. And I traveled uh, by way of uh, Frankfurt, 
and then finally uh, to Istanbul, uh, to Tehran, uh, Karachi, uh, Bangkok, and around that way, finally through Tokyo and eventually through Fairbanks and back to the States. But I, I have felt for a long time, a lot of people keep saying, well, we're Americanizing the world. I don't think that's true. I think, we're tw uh, the, I think the world is becoming a 20th century world. We tend to think of that as American. And yet, uh, driving uh, through New York the other day, for example, I was looking out of the window of the cab at 6th Avenue, and it hit me that, that large areas of that, of that area of New York don't look much like what people in Europe would think is New York or America. It looks a little bit like the slums of Glasgow, which is to say that the, the urban scene today is an international scene. It's not American, it's not English, it's not French, it's urban. It's urban 20th century. And the machines are the same. That uh, The telephones work the same. Uh, uh, the <laughs> I, I differ with you. Well, all right, a little few details, but they're going all the time. Guys are on them, talking to each other eternally in, 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 uh, in, uh, in Japan or in Paris, wherever you might go. The cabs tear around the streets. The traffic is there. They made the fronts of the cabs may look a little different, or the seat is different, but they're still roaring around. The meter is ticking off your life. Uh, wherever you are, and I believe that that uh, that New York is not really has much in common with the rest of the country, and yet most of our newspapers and magazines and idea papers are printed in New York. Well, uh, you agree with me that that New York isn't much like the rest of the country. I haven't done that much traveling in the United States. Uh, I've gone to city, uh, uh, I've gone to Las Vegas, San Francisco, uh, Florida. Yeah, but see, those are uh, all the major cities. The major cities. I haven't gone, uh, for example, in a car and traveled cross-country. Uh, I have no idea, of, for example, what life in Indiana is all about. Uh, I would have no conception well, see, of See, this presents great problems to people who back here are attempting to interpret the country. For example, if you recall back in 1968, uh, when there was the, the primaries were going on for the Democratic nomination, a friend of mine who was a news commentator uh, was coming out, he was going out to the Midwest to cover a, a, uh, a primary in Indiana. And, of course, he had all the eastern... Uh, cliches in his head about what a primary in Indiana was like. He assumed, of course, that the, the, the redneck right-wingers were out there and, and uh, it was going to be, uh, George Wallace was going to be fantastic and so on down the line. And I said, no, I said, you better be careful. I said that, that Bobby Kennedy selected Indiana for a specific reason, that he knew that Indiana has a history of electing uh, and nominating uh, if anything, uh, extreme liberals. Birch Bayh is an example. Uh, but he didn't understand this. He says, no, he says, no. So, of course, he went out there and came back confused because Bobby Kennedy did win that primary in Indiana. And it seemed to confuse the political pundits out here. But that's only because they didn't know much about Indiana. Uh, <laughs> well, uh the network TV news shows originate yes. from New York. As you made mention, the ideas come from New York. The New York Times and the Wall Street Journal 
which I understand have a great deal of weight throughout the country uh, in, in the field of journalism, especially the New York Times, Time Magazine, Newsweek Magazine. Uh, yet you always hear there's Middle America, that innocuous section of, of uh, the United States. I, I, and in my mind, I haven't quite figured out where does Middle America begin. Does it begin as soon as you cross the George Washington Bridge? Well, the irony of it all, Alan, is Middle America is generally, when, it's, when the word is used, is related to uh, conservative, uh, square, straight attitudes towards things. Do you agree with that? Mm, that is, I, I, I would say, the stereotype. But uh, isn't that what they generally mean yeah, when they use the phrase? Yeah, except uh, it doesn't hold true. Well, that's what I'm uh, getting at. I'm, uh, when I was in the service, yeah, I met people from all around the United States, and the stereotypes just didn't hold true. Well, either did the stereotypes of the East. For example, it's always generally considered out in the Midwest and the Far West that New York is a is a very liberal. Uh, almost libertarian place, and yet we're the only state that has an avowed conservative senator. The only state that has a senator that's called conservative. I mean, it's you know, not only it, his outlet, but his party. It's interesting. Isn't that interesting, though? Uh, New York City, as we've agreed on, is supposedly the most sophisticated city in the United States. Oh, I didn't say that. That's your phrase. I didn't, well, I said it doesn't I'll, bear I'll much. Use, I'll use it. See, it doesn't bear much. I don't believe that. I don't believe the big cities of the na of the world are sophisticated. I merely say they are different. And in fact, uh, quite often, uh, the urban man is one of the most unsophisticated of men. You t to me, Archie Bunker is a, is, a, is a stereotype of the urban uh, Queens resident. He may not be true to life, but. He's not sophisticated. Um, the point, well, I'll, I'll get back to Archie Bunker. The point that I was trying to make, in my mind, one assumes that a New Yorker is the most sophisticated uh, type of individual, is blasé uh, about everything and anything. Uh, you pick up Variety, and you notice the X-rated movie Deep Throat, which in New York City there was a obscenity trial. The case has not yet been decided. Yet Deep Throat is playing throughout the country and grossing just as well throughout the country. I recently had a friend come back from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and he said, "My God, there's, you know, the pornographic books." Yeah, but Alan, you know, we we tend in our time to relate sophistication with the acceptance of obscenity. In other words, the more you accept. Uh, obscenity or or pornography that proves your sophistication level. And as a matter of fact, to give you to, to give you another side of this story, for years it was axiomatic that at every Legion smoker uh, on Wednesday night, all the bowling team captains sat around and watched uh, what were called dirty films. Now you couldn't call them sophisticated men. Well, one's definition of sophistication depends on how one looks at it. Well, that's what I say, that to me, sophistication has nothing whatsoever to do with your acceptance or rejection of, uh, of uh, you might call, uh, explicit sex films. In I one mean, of your earlier books, uh, yeah. In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash, you discuss uh, the town in Indiana, Holman, Indiana, 
Well, that, that really... See, I didn't use that... Uh, again, I'm afraid that I've been taken literally. No, I assume that you're using literary license and you, you have created this town. Yes, it's not a real town, and also it's not a real Indiana. Uh, it's, like, it's like Faulkner's uh, county in a mythical Mississippi he created. He's not writing about a real place, and I'm, I'm not writing about but a real... But your background is from the Midwest. Well... Your youth was spent in the Midwest. Yes. The thing that I found interesting in there is while I am a bit younger than you, I could relate to episodes which occurred uh, in this mythical town home in Indiana, which occurred right in the Bronx, New York City. Well, see, I'm, I'm not writing about any time either, Alan. That's another thing that confuses people. Uh, 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 it is believed in America that, that we're, we're so hung on time this, we're, we're, this is another uh, obsession America has, time. And it really believes that, like every two years, everything changes. And that, that if you're 22 years old, you obviously are experiencing things that nobody over 22 can conceivably have, uh, have known about. No, uh, the, the point that, that I was uh, bringing out was you, you have a chapter regarding, a, I think the theater, movie theater was the Orpheum or whatever the theater uh, was, was called. And you relate that um, on Saturdays you went to see the Republic uh, Westerns, Bob Steele and... Uh, no, I didn't say that. The character. No. Yeah. No, I didn't. Be careful now. You're talking to the author of the book here. Uh, that... that you might have read that in it, and you, I've never, because I have never seen a Bob Steele movie. In fact, I did not use those terms. You used Bob Steele right. and Tim McCoy. In fact, in you, you, you want to you put some money on it? Well, you even, you... When we talk about you, money, you even, Alan, you even uh, denigrate, you say, uh, uh, only the effete like Junior Autry or Dick Moran. No, no, I was talking, no. You, you know exactly who I used? I did not say Bob Steele, nor did I say Tim McCoy, because I never saw any Ken, movies. I'm sorry, Ken Maynard. No, I did not. I, I talked about, if you recall, who had a horse called Trigger? It was Roy Rogers. That's right. In fact, uh, so the, the, the idea of what I was talking about in that was taken not from my own youth. Do you know where I got the idea of that, that, that piece? No. Over in Clifton, New Jersey, one night, uh, in the mid-60s, I was, I was driving through Clifton, and there was, a, there was a theater marquee that said, Wednesday night, dish night. Now, it is believed firmly by many people that dish night no longer exists. As a matter of fact, dish night is very big in many parts of I the country. I didn't know that. Do you I know that they still obsolete. give dishes away today in drive-in theaters? In, in, for example, Fort Lauderdale, Florida? You didn't know that. Okay. Well, that's what I'm trying to say. Now, a guy, a guy who, has, who has just gone to dish night in, let's say, the Thunderbird Theater in Odessa, Florida, reading that doesn't look upon that as a past episode. It's current. See, I'm yeah. saying that's what my point of my book is, is in that, really, is that the New Yorker believes that everything has disappeared. He firmly believes that today nobody goes to proms. Well, as a matter of fact, the story in Wanda Hickey was, 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 a, was based on a prom which I observed in Jersey in 1967. 
68. I understand your point. I uh, wonder if you could let me make a point for a moment. This is Dialogue Radio <laughs> 57. WMCA right here in New York City. I, I don't want to get into this, this whole hassle about time. Every time I write a book, that always comes up. Uh, and, and by the way, this was also a problem that faced Mark Twain. Do you ever go to the track? No. I don't either. No it's interest. not my ball. Whatsoever. No. Not at all. I find it very dull. Well, some people can't resist gambling. It's, uh, gambling is... Uh, oh, I'd like to sit down in a poker game. Well, that's not gambling, generally. With me, it's not gambling. I just never win. Uh, that's right. We played over in Bob Alden's backyard. That's right. Uh, when Bob, Bob Smith had had that apartment first. That's right. Anybody that po plays poker with me ain't gambling. He's just taking money, that's all. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a terrible poker player. Oh, I'm a very good poker what player. What do you think? For the simple reason, even if I'm playing for nickels and dimes, I don't go in unless I know that I have something to at least start. To well, every time hand. I get a good hand, my nose starts to sweat, and everybody knows that. <laughs> uh, I drop cards on the floor, get all excited. What would happen uh, if New York State would adopt gambling uh, on the scale of uh, Las Vegas, no, the entire state of Nevada. I don't know. It would be a fascinating concept. I'm sure tax, uh, taxes would go down. Not necessarily. We, 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 we keep looking for these pies in the sky that's going to knock our... Uh, OTB hasn't done much for any of us. No. It was going to reduce uh, welfare and everything else. They put in the lot. They put in the lottery in several states, and it's made no discernible difference in people's taxes. Well, I think with OTB, what they fail to realize is most m most money, most wagering, gambling, which is bet on a daily basis, is not bet on the horses. It's not bet on the horses. Whether, no, it's, whether, it's, on, whether it's on the numbers. Or uh, football, yeah, or now, basketball. What, what, there's also a theory in in in, uh, in economics that the more money that comes in, the more places you'll find to spend it. And you'll always be behind the eight ball. I've known people. Uh, you see it in your your own friends' uh, lives that uh, as their income goes up, they find more places to spend it, and if, and they're always in debt. Guy makes a hundred thousand a year, and he's still in debt. That's right. So is he ahead? And so, so we, we uh, uh, that all the various fantastic schemes that we're going to uh, knock out, you know, reduce taxes, now we have uh, legalized betting, they're going to bring in probably legalized prostitution and legalized everything else and make a lot of money. The state's going to be in, in all these businesses. And we then will be charged taxes to maintain the buildings uh, that are going to go to make up this Yeah, but, we ha but you have the example of the state of Nevada, which does have a state, has, gam uh, a state but gaming commission. That's such, a, uh, that's such a tiny state, but you know that that has the smallest per capita population? So, uh, it, it, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's like uh, uh, they have hardly any taxes anyway, even if you took away gambling, because it's mostly desert, the state. Uh, but we have a vast public school system here, a vast welfare system, a vast highway system, and it's ever-expanding. So ultimately, uh, you can't compare Nevada with New York. Yeah, but on the other hand, uh, you have uh, what some people have called, uh, we're on the basis of a uh, an actual tax uh, uh, revolt. 
You have taxes on cigarettes, which uh, have reached an outstanding amount, taxes on gasoline, which are high, taxes on liquor, which are high. You have a state income tax. Alan, you have a city income have tax. Have you ever heard of taxes going down? That's a difficult question. Well, I'm trying to say here that, that, that taxes are like population. They always go No, up. but I think... <laughs> I, I, I think... <laughs> if you, just simply, no, I think if we could stabilize them, if you can stabilize taxes, that in itself would be a victory. I find it uh, interesting that the entire question of welfare, and it's now under the euphorism of social services or human resources administration, whatever you want to call it, Welfare, you now have a million two hundred thousand people on welfare. And if you take a, a chart and, and with normal geometric progression, eventually you're going to reach a point, some period in time, where you're going to totally run out of money. Uh, the example, the classic example, is in New York City, where you've got the middle class, which has literally fled the uh, the city there's a mass exodus you now have businesses which are which are leaving and uh, large companies nabisco 1200 employees picking up and leaving let alone the other problems where is the city of new york going to get its tax base from you have to have something well yes i'm not i'm not arguing uh, uh I, I am arguing on a larger scale. I'm saying that every scheme that has come along that uh, seems to give a, a uh, apparently out, you know, a, a way out, an exit for excessive taxes to bring in more revenue has turned out to be ultimately, after the dust has settled and the rhetoric is cleared and the turnstiles are working, it has turned out to be ultimately making no dent whatsoever on the tax problem. Unfortunately, it, it's like it's like the it's like the logarithmic principle, uh, where the more businesses you go into, which apparently are going to save your business that you originally started to save, the more problems you run into. So there will be five thousand new employees added to the state who will operate the gambling casinos. At which point they will all strike and demand more money. Uh, and then there will be endless negotiations with those people. In short, what I'm saying is that the, the, the money that you make on a thing like that tends to go to maintain that structure itself. An example of that is, can be seen uh, over here on our turnpikes and so on. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a fact that years ago when they built the, the George Washington Bridge, they charged a, 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 a toll. They said that they were gonna, that was going to finally pay off the bridge. Well, they paid off that bridge millions of times over, and now they've just raised the toll on it, which means then that uh, <laughs> that the that in short, the more you expand your business, the more your business demands to run it. Are you assuming now that it is going to be the state which is going going to go into this business? My thoughts on the subject is not for you're absolutely correct. If the state would go if we would have gambling and the states would own it as a state operating. No, I'm saying that if it was given to private people to run certainly. that then you would have a vast machinery to regulate it. 
that that after all, you can't simply say, well, we're going to uh, we're going to legalize all this gambling and let anybody, any guy that comes in, loaded dice and the whole works. Uh, that that most states have found, I'm talking about countries that have found where the legalized gambling is a a a, a, a an operating thing. That the that the regulatory agencies and the amount of uh, policing and so on that is necessary runs into a considerable problem. It, it isn't that simple. You don't just say, "Well, let's license gambling. Let's cut a cut a bit off." The no, top. I realize the the problem uh, requires a great deal of study. Because the minute you legalize it, you know the state, in a sense, is saying that that uh, we're 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 also uh, testifying to the honesty of these people. What I am concerned with is we have year in and year out. It, it doesn't matter who's the mayor of New York City and who's the governor. It really doesn't matter. Uh, New York City uh, uh, has a budget, and uh, uh, there's always a proposed deficit. And the uh, mayor of New York City claims it, the state has to give us more funds. And the state and the governor says, you've gotten your fair share. And now the talk is, well, we're going to get it from the federal government. Uh, they're not solving uh, the solution. They're just passing the buck because eventually the federal government is going to get its money through taxation, which is, which is again, out well, of... Well, what you're really saying is, is in a sense, uh, that, and I hate to use this expression, uh, that we're drifting in, almost by necessity and by... Uh, almost like a Greek inevitability uh, towards a socialistic state, where ultimately we will all we, work we, for. We're the not state. we're not drifting towards a socialistic state. We are uh, we have entered into it, and we are now existing as well, a semi-socialistic well, state. It's true, the government hasn't nationalized industries, but the government has its hand in a great many fields, in a great many fields. Well, and, and the ironical part of it is that is that uh, people are demanding more government involvement. As a matter of fact, that's what you're really demanding when you say legalize gambling. That would have to be a government-regulated business. Gambling exists now. You say you would, want the government to yeah, get but, into it. But you still have <laughs> private enterprise. Well, yes, but... But uh, the, 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 the difficulty of, of each succeeding when you say we are going, I, I agree that we are uh, heading towards a, a form of socialism. Uh, and the problem is making the transition. See, a lot of people uh, don't want to accept that, and they, 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 uh, you know, they argue the fact, well, what is it, my 75% of my income goes to taxes. Well, that wouldn't surprise a guy in a socialistic state. He'd say, well, this is the way it is. Uh, <laughs> it's just that we won't accept it. But when you have a... St See, it depends on what you consider the state. In our time, we have looked upon the state, in a sense, as the all-encompassing father that must provide these services for us. I think that, that was the basis for fallacious thinking at the very outset. Ranging all the way from medicine to education to, uh, to uh, new eyeglasses to... Uh, uh, to to psychiatric treatment, to whatever it might be. In other words, the state must take care of me. Yeah, but if, you, if one studies the history of the United States from the very beginnings, back in, in, in the 1770s, the, the founding fathers, especially the Federalists, 
and even Thomas Jefferson who said that government is best which governs least. That was Thomas Jefferson. Uh, somewhere along the line, uh, basically, I, I presume, uh, with the New Deal with FDR, when the country was faced in, in dire economic straits, we, we have gone ahead into it. And today, where you have allegedly a conservative Republican, Richard Nixon, you still have the government pr proposing more and more federal programs. Well, that's uh, that's the way it's going, and I and I can see that. I'm not. I'm taking no pro or con stand. I'm saying that you you have to accept the fact that, that is the way it's going, and since it is, and uh, modern thinking demands the state, in a sense, to be a surrogate mother, or in fact, a surrogate father combined. In addition to that, a surrogate banker, more like a, a surrogate Santa Claus, ultimately. That you, you, since you have this concept of the state as a very popular concept and is a growing concept, why not accept it and then do it right? See, I think the problem is that we keep resisting and we patch it up. We, we, we do it bit by bit and, and little bit by little bit. And so it's done grudgingly. Uh, I say, let's, it's just like an alcoholic. If you admit you're an alcoholic, then you, you're on your way to some kind of solving, at least, of your problem, or at least uh, preventing it from becoming a runaway fatal problem. Uh, and let's admit that uh, that we uh, that we are we're a socialist country and work work towards that. Well, it's a very hard thing to admit. Well, uh, but it's it's admitting only what is evident. Uh, it's like uh, refusing to admit the earth is round. Uh, and I'm, uh, I think this is what we'll do eventually. I think we'll, we'll, uh, the people who are calling for a socialist form of government are really kind of bad. They're kind of outdated. I mean, you hear people say we should be socialists. We should go. That is sad because we've been that for probably 50 years or more. Mm, a little less, actually. Not much less. Uh, getting away from that, in your book, you've got uh, one story uh, or one article. They're not articles, we're really, mm -hmm. stories. They're, 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 uh, I hear America uh, singing. Yeah, that's a short story. And you story describe your travels. Uh, no, it's not I. You've got I as Gene Shepard. It's not the narrator. Yeah, but he, that, that it was a short story that appeared in Mademoiselle. And the I is like... Uh, you know what I'm going to do for all my stories? I'm going to invent a name before each one and say, my name is Harold Murchison, and I sell brushes. And, and then at that point when he says I, then no one was going to say, well, that's Shepard talking about his travels. You discuss in, as the author, you discuss the, tra your, the travel to Chicago on first class. And you make a rather astute observation regarding uh, one of the other first class passengers who was, um, I guess you might describe him as a hippie with a guitar. And you make a rather astute observation that uh, in order for him to achieve this uniform, these faded dungarees, his father must have paid a good deal of money to uh, make this person, this rebel. Uh, I think that's... Uh, it's an interesting point. Well, rebels are very expensive. 
And that, that a guy, really, a, a true status symbol today is a man who has a kid who has bombed at least one police station. Then, he, then he's admitting that he's truly an affluent, upper-middle-class guy. That's a true affluent man. And uh, I, I, I know one guy who's extremely proud of the fact that two of his sons in the past year were busted for, for hard drugs, which, again, is an affluent uh, symbol of a true affluent man. Uh, and this is a... <laughs> rebels don't come cheap. They really don't. Uh, they, they usually come from very well-padded... Well, as a matter of fact, you recall when the weathermen uh, made the headlines and a brownstone in New York City went puff one particular day, mm -hmm. and the pictures were published in the paper the next day. Mark Rudd was one of the missing people of the alleged weathermen. Uh, all of them did come from upper middle in uh, upper middle income families. I was just wondering, what are your thoughts? Why are they rebelling? And what are they rebelling against? Well, uh, I think that... Uh, well, I think that uh, Abby Hoffman said it. It's revolution for the hell of it. See, we keep... It's, it's a kick. It's, it's exciting. And it's... Uh, uh, this is not a new thing, historically. Uh, back in the days of the French Revolution, many of the... Many of the uh, nobles of the court, uh, Marie Antoinette, uh, identified closely with cow maids and peasants, and they even went to the extent of going out into the fields on, on weekends pretending they were peasants. Do you know about this historically? Yeah. Well, that probably seemed very strange to the people of the time. I'm talking about the, the their other nobles who kept you know, their, their friends who kept saying, well, you realize, of course, when the revolution comes, you're going to be the one, one of the first to get in the, that tumbrel. Well, it didn't seem to the people who were doing it that it actually would happen. And ironically enough, most of the people who I think who are the, the, uh, the, the, the most fervent advocates of revolution are some of the very first people who would be trotted off to the to the tumble. But they don't see it that way. They don't understand that. Because I guess they don't understand revolutions are for keeps. <laughs> you better than around. This is what got a lot of guys in Castro's Cuba, you know. But, uh, they, they, they got behind Castro, and uh, they were some of the first guys that wound up in the sports palace on that spectacular night when the rattle of gunfire was heard. And that... Of course, the last fleeting glimpse they have of those guns going off, it was much too late for them to say, wait a minute, I see you weren't getting." Dialogue Radio 57. Gene Shepard and Alan Cornett are my guests tonight. And uh, I, I think we'll have to look up... What was that? Uh, all others pay cash and God we trust? God, God we trust, trust and God we trust all others pay cash. All right. So let's get into another area. Yeah. All right. Um, I was... Uh, By the way, I've just been reissued, that book, in case you're interested. Uh, Who's your editor at Doubleday? Harold Kubler, which is unusual for a book. Uh, when you say reissued, uh, a book is rarely brought out again by a publisher uh, after it's gone through its regular publisher. Sometimes they'll sell it to the paperback house or something, but... Uh, it's not in paperback yet, is it? Well, the, 
It isn't. It isn't. This uh, new. There's a new kind of paperback. Is what they call a quality paperback, which mm-hmm. is a library type, and it is in that. That's what it came out in. Dolphin, which is part of Doubleday Press, and it just was reissued. Uh, and uh, I'm I'm pleased that uh, there is uh, you know a lot of people reading it who didn't read it the first time around. You know what I'd like to uh, ask you? Do you think more people are reading books today? Yes, uh, that's a good question, and I think they are. I think that uh, that primarily among the young, that's a really great sign. I think in, in direct refutation of what Marshall McLuhan was saying back in the middle '60s that uh, kids of today uh, read more than their parents do. In fact, so many of the books that are sold today are sold to kids. That, that uh, for example, when, when, uh, when In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash came out in hard covers, uh, I would say a good 60 to 65% of the hardcover edition was bought by people under, probably under 18. I have noticed... Uh a great many books which come out and their authors go on the tour around the country uh, and in many cases certain books which have in, at least in my opinion very limited literary value become instant successes and sell a great many copies what, what is your feeling about this promote the promotion of books well, that's uh, a good question, too, because almost every author uh, has run into this problem. And, and uh, that some publishing houses don't really, e- are not interested in publishing what you would call literature. They're interested in a product. It's just like an automobile manufacturer. is not interested in creating a, a great automobile. He's interested in selling units. And uh, so he's not even attempting to compete with Jaguar or or uh, Aston Martin, he's turning out a product. And I think that we have not yet recognized the fact that some publishers are not turning out any more than... uh, They're turning out the literary equivalent of an afternoon soap opera. Now, that takes promotion. It takes takes a hell of a lot of promotion to sell, because that stuff is largely promotion. So they'll spend a fantastic amount of money just promoting a book. Press agents, they, they, they plant items in columns. And uh, they, uh, they make sure that... In fact, you know that today that many publishers practically audition an author to, to make sure that she looks great and can get on the Johnny Carson show and say funny things and look groovy in her, uh, her uh, mod glasses and... And uh, they, they, they literally do audition people uh, for their appearance on TV shows. Well, I can, I can understand that, since the publisher is uh, purpose is to earn a profit, whether, he's, uh, whether the publishing house is part of a conglomerate or an independent publisher, is to earn a profit, and he publishes where he thinks he'll be able to sell. I can understand that. What I resent is the fact that a book of value will be published and the publisher has limited resources or for reasons best known to the publisher as you stated the author may be a fantastic writer but he's not very verbal 
Well, it's not even uh, that. He may not even get a chance to prove whether he is or not, Alan. That, that you know that most TV shows today, I'm talking about the big national shows, the, the talk shows, absolutely do not book any writers unless he's written a book about Vietnam or a book on how to, how to diet, a trick book or a sex book. If you've written a great novel, uh, you simply don't get on a television show. Now, who will get on, ultimately, is the girl that starred in the movie that ultimately was made out of the book. But uh, they, they, authors, people who write fiction, uh, find it very difficult today to get booked on shows. You're going to watch your television set a long time before you see John Barth uh, interviewed by uh, Johnny Carson. Well, I I recall one in, uh, one book which was on the best nonfiction, by the way, which uh, was on the best so number one, as a matter of fact, for a good number of weeks, and it's a fine book. The only uh, problem, and it's not a problem, is another individual wrote a similar book two years prior to that, and I happened to buy the book and. John uh, had the individual on, and this fellow's book was far more comprehensive and a much finer book, which had limited success. And the main reason, of course, was the second book came out, and the authors were quite verbal and very photographic, and they knew the uh, the anecdotes, and they did the rounds of Johnny Carson and Merv Griffin and Mike uh, Douglas and Dick Cavett. And um, the, the book became a success. Uh, well, a lot has to do with the publishing house itself, too. Uh, if, if, you're, if you're fortunate enough to have your book come out, uh, brought out by a, a powerful publishing house, there are powerful publishing houses, and then there are weak ones. There are, it's just like automobiles again. I mean, after all, if you tried to, uh, try to uh, promote, say, uh, the Austin Healey, and you're competing with Chrysler Motors, you have problems. And so when a major publishing house uh, calls up uh, and wants a guest on, on, uh, on a show, they also, see, they're also a major house because they have to earn, hold other authors in their files. In other words, they may have, uh, let's say, let's say a major house may have somebody like Norman Aylor, we'll say, but they also have Charlie Brown, just a guy. So if the guy on the talk show eventually wants to get Norman Mailer, he's given to understand that he may not get Norman Mailer unless he has Charlie Brown first. So Charlie gets it's on the show. Deal. Yes, that's right. And on the other hand, you'll also find that, that a lot of these talk show guys occasionally come out with a, an exploit book. Uh, like, uh, ain't it fun to drink coffee out of a paper cup? Reminiscences of... Uh, the late night TV show by uh, by uh, Happy Hop Noodle, your TV host, and it sells for a buck. Forty-seven million copies are sold. Well, that was brought out by a publishing house. Curiously enough, you will find that for the preceding six months, he's had several authors, and they've all come from that publishing house. So there's a lot of things that go to make up the the promotion of a book. Do you think uh, word of mouth has any effect today? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, word of mouth is what brought 
uh, in God we trust back into, into uh, print. That's a fact. Absolute fact. That Doubleday was getting constant requests from people who had read it or heard about it. Uh, they borrowed a copy once or they loaned it to somebody else and they kept writing in and kept bugging stores about it. And eventually, that accumulated demand brought, they simply said, well, we'll bring it out. Very unusual thing for them to republish a book. Word of mouth did it. Yes, word of mouth does affect the book. With the, the theater or with films, critics have um, the ultimate say, or at least to my way of thinking, uh, especially New York critics. What effect does uh, a review or a negative review uh, in the New York Times on any particular book? Happily, not as much as it used to have. Uh, the, the only thing that the New York Times does wield a powerful weapon in is their hypothetical bestseller list. Do you know that, that Alan, the last two books that I've had uh, were on national bestseller lists, but were never mentioned on the bestseller list of the Times? I don't know why. In fact, uh, Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories, which was my last book, was on the Time Magazine national bestseller list. They only have five in their list, which is one of the hardest lists to crack. It was never mentioned in the Times bestseller list. Don't ask me why. How do they uh, arrive at it? Do they that's one of the, the great the New York? That's an argument because you see, one of the great it's it's that this is a human institution. You know, it's not it's not to be taken as as a, like a graven image has come down from high. But uh, the bestseller lists are a great controversial issue today within the book industry. Because it is a fact that many books are selling better than the ones on the bestseller list. Nobody knows why they're not uh, listed there. Well, they only uh, uh, contact. Well, even if the, some no, ten or fifteen. Let's stars. even assume there are books that are selling more in those ten or fifteen stores that are reported to the people. Right? Nobody knows why that's not taken. Well, I have heard this, and this may be just apocryphal, there may be absolutely no fact to it at all, that there are publishers who will, who know the stores, and the week that there might be, a, that they're, they're trying to really get a, uh, a listing, that they will buy heavy from those stores. Well, that's, that. That may not be so apocryphal. I think also, too, uh, that, that, that it's just like uh, uh, top 40 song lists and all that. This, this has always been a subject of, of great uh, controversy. But in the end, uh, a publisher or an author, particularly a publisher, he knows in exact numbers what a book has sold. Now, I, yes, he does. He certainly does. And I, I, I happen to have an experience at Doubleday where... My book was leading the Double Day's books. Actually, it was selling more books around the country and in New York than any other book that Double Day had out at that time. And yet, two of Double Day's books were on the bestseller list. They knew it wasn't selling as much as, as mine. Now, uh, 
I'm not making any accusations. This has confused a lot of people over Doubleday, and they said, well, that's the way it is. This happened several times to them. Now, you may make one list and not another. Who knows? And yet, both of the organizations that make those lists are very reputable organizations. Time Magazine is no uh, fly-by-night outfit. I was on the Time Magazine bestseller list, national bestseller list, and never even mentioned of it in the Times. How many copies does it take to become a bestseller? Well, Nationwide. a bestseller is an argument. Uh, people can argue about that. Uh, but in general, let's put it this way, that any hardcover book that sells over 30,000 hardcover copies is a real dynamite seller, believe it or not. Has this number gone up over the years? Well, I'm not qualified to say. I don't know. Because the population, of course, has always increased. And I was just well, it's all relative numbers. Uh, I was just wondering if the number remains constant, which would indicate a, high, a certain high core. Because you see what's cut into drastically the, the uh, sale of, of books, uh, hardcover. We're talking about hardcover yeah. books here. Is that, is that large numbers of people today don't even buy large co- hardcover books, yet they're, they're omnivorous readers. They read exclusively paperbacks. So that you'd never know. Uh, we're talking about hardcover books. Uh, and, and I'm speaking of hardcover books when I talk about, say, In God We Trust. I can, you know, I know specific numbers in that that it's sold. And so it's, it's very difficult to say whether there's more books sold today. Or, and there's another question. They have also found out in, in research, John, you might be interested in this, that large numbers of books are bought but never read. So uh, can you... Uh, uh, you're, you're not referring to the coffee tables, I know. No, not at all. I'm referring to people who come into a bus station and they get this this urge, subterranean urge, to buy this paperback collection of Chekhov. They put, put it in their raincoat pocket and it is never read. Now, uh, now you say you don't do that, but I have done it. And I, and, I, and I know that, that large numbers of books are bought that are really never read. People buy a book for a gift, and they give it to somebody. Uh, that's no insurance that the guy read it when he got it. Yeah, I can understand that. I can't see a person going out and purchasing a book. One would assume before the person is buying the book, he would have some interest in the book. Now, we're talking about soft covers here. Hardcover books are read. Soft cover books, that's a, that's a question. Well, my own views on, on pocketbooks is their, co- their rise in cost. Their cost has gone up in, in a much higher degree proportionally than hardcover books. Oh, sure. A, a pocketbook, which... Dollar ninety-five today yeah. for the average pocketbook. And uh, I, I saw this yesterday in an article. When they first came out, they are supposed to be a quarter. 25 cents and 35 cents now as john said a dollar 95 well yeah. see a lot of the soft cover people soft cover buyers are being taken in that they they don't know what hardcover books cost because they've never bought one uh this may seem strange to you but there are many people who've never bought a hardcover book in their lives and it would astound them to realize that this uh, soft cover book which they paid almost sometimes 4.95 they could get a hardcover version, which would really last and be easier to read and everything else, for 5 
<laughs> in other words, uh, it's just like the old discount house uh, flim flam that many people have only, only buy in discount houses, and they're shocked to find that they're paying more for their shaving cream than their than the than the, than the legitimate drugstore down the street is charged. You know what amazes me is you to walk in. Yes, and one one particular discount house it'll remain nameless because they're not doing anything that is wrong, and all of their cosmetics are list price and people are standing in line with three or four bottles of cologne and shaving cream and razor blades and all waiting in a long line when they could go to their neighborhood pharmacy and the guy will kiss them on all four cheeks if they want if they go for a ten well, Lee Brown you know Lee sure. Lee works with me and John is an old friend of Lee uh, Lee had an experience the other day she she was buying a gift uh, for a person, and she decided what she wanted to do was to get a hair dryer, a particular hair dryer. So she went to a store that is a famous store itself, and we will never be undersold. Well, luckily, when she was in line there to th that day to buy that hair dryer, she couldn't wait. There were a lot of people buying those hair dryers. That was before Christmas, and they were just, you know, hooping it up, and she couldn't wait, so she had to leave. Well, it got time got tight, so she went to the her local elegant drugstore, which is a very expensive place, and says, "I want to buy one of these hair dryers." You figure this is really going to be bad news. It was a dollar seventy-five cheaper there than it was at the famous store, and more than that, since there's only one guy in that store, he knew she bought it there. Anything problem goes on, she can bring it right back to me. Remembers that she bought it. Well. But that's that's a that's a great uh, psychological weapon, and I think it, it applies to the paperback books. But uh, I think another thing too, though, uh, when you talk about reading, I think that uh, I think that 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 a lot of kids today uh, read because they've been led into reading in areas that their fathers never knew. For example, kids are reading magazines like the National Lampoon. Uh, they're reading Mad Magazine. There's a great deal of reading in that. Uh, uh, they're reading uh, Playboy. A lot of kids start reading Playboy by digging the center fold-out. The next thing you know, they're reading the stuff around it. Whereas uh, just a few years ago, reading was largely in a, you know, it's a, an established adult activity. And uh, I think television, I think there's a whole generation of people all in their late 30s on up through their 40s who were so traumatized by television when it came in their life they gave up everything else well i haven't seen television in about six weeks not even the news never get a chance anymore it's easy not to miss yeah <laughs> well sporting events sporting events and news programs are fairly you know i've even discovered sporting events are boring me that, that I find one pro football game looks almost exactly like another. And they go endlessly on and on. They all resemble a highly organized beanbag. <laughs> uh, there's uh, more footballs in the air. That's all they do is throw the football around. And that's just like... Uh, and I, I say, well, I used to be a fanatic. I never missed a football game, but... But now I find it very easy to walk out in the middle. Yeah, but New Year's Day they had Ohio State in the Rose Bowl, and Woody Hayes in Ohio State. He, you know, his philosophy of football is uh, you get a good fullback, and it's uh, three yards in a cloud of dust. 
And that's rather boring, too. Well, I say they're both boring. So the, the point I'm making at that, that, that a lot of football is thrown back and forth is no, bore, is no less boring uh, than, than the cloud of dust. That, uh, that uh, unless you can get endly ex- endlessly excited over that same play. You know, I, I differ with you. This last year in professional football, it was called the year of the runner. They had more runners well, game over. So now two plays were run, one from, from scrimmage. She shook Kurt, Kurt Gowdy, and he dubbed it the year of the runner. And uh, <laughs> that, uh, everything is relative, I'm afraid, Alan, but... but uh, <laughs> Believe me, uh, we went, uh, and so uh, yeah, they're all doing the same thing. I mean, and so as far as I'm concerned, it takes a pretty dull mind to be in, intrigued over that same endless play. Well, I, I think, uh, Alan, you do spend a lot your spare moments watching that, don't you? This is Dialogue Radio 57. Well, I used to be a, you know, I really, I'm not, I'm not trying to be an intellectual snob about this, but... I find today I'm much more interested in seeing, say, like last week, when Dave Waddle run against uh, uh, top milers. Yeah, I, well, I don't limit myself to professional football, but professional football, while it's not the number one spectator sport, um, it does have a vast audience. It's been highly successful. I'm awfully sorry. I must apologize. This is WMCA right here in New York City. 